Welcome to the Faith Comes From Hearing podcast. This podcast will be a sharing of part of my morning routine as I prepare for the day with the Word of God. We will be partaking of Puritan prayers from the Valley of Vision, each day's morning devotional from Charles Haddon Spurgeon's Morning and Evening, and we'll be reading from the Legacy Standard Bible, which is the newest and, I believe, the most accurate translation of the Word of God. We will be following a Bible reading calendar that provides for reading the whole Bible in a year that was created by Minister Robert Murray McShane for his congregation back in 1842, and that has been a part of my daily reading for over six years now. Good morning and welcome to the morning segment of the Sunday, February 19th episode of the Faith Comes From Hearing podcast. Uh, that would be episode number 172, 172. Uh, I'm Wayne Floyd, your host. The Faith Comes From Hearing podcast is a humble member of the Christian Podcast Community. You can find us over at christianpodcastcommunity.org. Um, I would definitely encourage you to go over there um, and do some looking um, to find listening for you. Uh, definitely worth your time. Wonderful men and women of God over there putting together great, great content. Definitely worth your time. Um, I would also continue to remind you about the link at the bottom of our show notes it is for the Vail Valley Baptist Church Gives In Go campaign. We are striving to rapidly pay off our mortgage so that we can shift gears and commence establishment of a Christian classic education based school to provide an alternative for the parents and grandparents out in our community. Um, so uh, please go ahead and click on the link. Take a read through. It's better description than I just gave you to let you know what we're doing. And then we would ask three things of you. We'd ask for you to pray for us. We'd ask for you to prayerfully consider giving. Um, and then we would ask you to pass the link on so that other people can do the same. All right. And again, we're going to, we're in the weekend. So we're going to be doing, we're going to do our normal reading this morning. And then I'm going to be reading from um, Thomas Watson's The Godly Man's Picture um, for this evening segment. And then we'll go back to our Bible study, God willing, tomorrow evening. Um, let's see, there was something else I was thinking I needed to say. Oh, and again, I hope that either you've gone to church last evening or you're getting ready for church this morning. So let's go ahead and let, let's, I won't, I won't ramble too long here. We're going to go ahead and open up this morning. Like we usually do with the first day morning prayer. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we commune with thee every day, but weekdays are worldly days and secular concerns reduce heavenly impressions. We bless thee, therefore, for the day sacred to our souls, when we can wait upon thee and be refreshed. We thank thee for the institutions of religion, by use of which we draw near to thee, and thou to us. We rejoice in another Lord's Day, when we call off our minds from the cares of the world, and attend upon thee without distractions. Let our retirement be devout, our conversation edifying, our reading pious, our hearing profitable, that our souls may be quickened and elevated. We are going to the house of prayer. Pour upon us the spirit of grace and supplication. We are going to the house of praise. Awaken in us every grateful and cheerful emotion. We are going to the house of instruction. Give testimony to the word preached and glorify it in the hearts of all who hear. May it enlighten the ignorant, awaken the careless, reclaim the wandering, establish the weak, comfort the feeble-minded, make ready a people for their Lord. Be a sanctuary to all who cannot come. Forget not those who never come, and do thou bestow upon us benevolence towards our dependents, forgiveness towards our enemies, peaceableness towards our neighbors, openness towards our fellow Christians. Amen. 
All right. And now our morning devotion from Spurgeon's Morning and Evening for February 19th. The text comes from Ezekiel 36, 37. Thus saith the Lord God, I will yet for this be inquired of by the house of Israel to do it for them. Prayer is the forerunner of mercy. Turn to sacred history, and you will find that scarcely ever did a great mercy come to this world unheralded by supplication. You have found this true in your own personal experience. God has given you many an unsolicited favor, but still great prayer has always been the prelude of great mercy with you. When you first found peace through the blood of the cross, you had been praying much and earnestly interceding with God that he would remove your doubts and deliver you from your distresses. Your assurance was the result of prayer. When at any time you have had high and rapturous joys, you have been obliged to look upon them as answers to your prayers. When you have had great deliverances out of sore troubles and mighty help in great dangers, you have been able to say, I sought the Lord and he heard me and delivered me from all my fears. Prayer is always the preface to blessing. It goes before the blessing as the blessing's shadow. When the sunlight of God's mercies rise upon our necessities, it casts the shadow of prayer far down upon the plain. Or to use another illustration, when God piles up a hill of mercies, he himself shines behind them, and he casts on our spirits the shadows, the shadow of prayer, so that we may rest certain. If we are much in prayer, our pleadings are the shadows of mercy. Prayer is thus connected with the blessing to show us the value of it. If we had the blessings without asking for them, we should think them common things. But prayer makes our mercies more precious than diamonds. The things we ask for are precious, but we do not realize their preciousness until we have sought for them earnestly. Prayer makes the darkened cloud withdraw. Prayer climbs the ladder Jacob saw, gives exercise to faith and love, brings every blessing from above. All right, and now our reading for today. Uh, we're going to be in Leviticus 7, verse 28 through Leviticus 9, verse 6. Uh, Mark 3, verse 31 through Mark 4, verse 25, Psalm 37, verses 12 to 29, and Proverbs 10, verse 5. So let's start at Leviticus 7, verse 28. Hear the word of the Lord. Then Yahweh spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel, saying, He who brings the sacrifice of his peace offerings near to Yahweh shall bring his offering to Yahweh from the sacrifice of his peace offerings. His own hands are to bring offerings by fire to Yahweh. He shall bring the fat with the breast, but the breast may be waved as a wave offering before Yahweh. And the priest shall offer up the fat in smoke on the altar, but the breast shall belong to Aaron and his sons. And you shall give the right thigh to the priest as a contribution from the sacrifices of your peace offerings. The one among the sons of Aaron who brings near the blood of the peace offerings and the fat, the right thigh, shall be his as his portion." For I have taken the breast of the wave offering and the thigh of the contribution from the son of Israel, from the sacrifices of their peace offering, and I have given them to Aaron and the priest, to his, I'm sorry, to Aaron the priest, and to his sons as a perpetual statute taken from the sons of Israel. Excuse me. This is the share for Aaron and the share for his sons from the offerings by fire to Yahweh, in that day when he brought them near to minister as priests to Yahweh. These Yahweh had commanded to be given them from the sons of Israel in the day that he anointed them. It is a perpetual statute throughout the ge their generations. This is the law of the burnt offering, 
the grain offering and the sin offering and the guilt offering and the ordination offering and the sacrifice of peace offerings, which Yahweh commanded Moses at Mount Sinai in the day that he commanded the sons of Israel to bring their offerings near to Yahweh in the wilderness of Sinai. Leviticus 8. Then Yahweh spoke to Moses, saying, Take Aaron and his sons with him, and the garments, and the anointing oil, and the bull of the sin offering, and the two rams, and the basket of unleavened bread, and assemble all the congregation at the doorway of the tent of meeting. So Moses did, just as Yahweh commanded him. Then the congregation was assembled at the doorway of the tent of meeting. And Moses said to the congregation, This is the thing which Yahweh has commanded to do. Then Moses had Aaron and his sons come near and wash them with water. And he put the tunic on him, and girded him with the sash, and clothed him with the robe, and put the ephod on him. And he girded him with the skillfully woven band of the ephod, with which he tied it to him. He then placed the breastpiece on him, and in the breastpiece he put the urim and the thummim. He also placed the turban on his head, and on the turban at its front he placed the golden plate, the holy crown, just as Yahweh had commanded Moses. Moses then took the anointing oil and anointed the tabernacle and all that was in it and set them apart as holy. And he sprinkled some of it on the altar seven times and anointed the altar and all its utensils and the laver and its stand to set them apart as holy. Then he poured some of the anointing oil on Aaron's head and anointed him to set him apart as holy. Next Moses brought Aaron's sons near and clothed them with tunics and girded them with sashes and bound caps on them just as Yahweh had commanded Moses. Then he brought the bull of the sin offering, and Aaron and his sons laid their hands on the head of the bull of the sin offering. Next Moses slaughtered it and took the blood, and with his fingers put some of it around on the horns of the altar and purified the altar. Then he poured out the rest of the blood at the base of the altar and set it apart as holy to make atonement for it. He also took all the fat that was on the entrails and the lobe of the liver and the two kidneys and their fat, and Moses offered it up in smoke on the altar. But the bull and its hide and its flesh and its refuse he burned in the fire outside the camp, just as Yahweh had commanded Moses. Then he brought near the ram of the burnt offering, and Aaron and his sons laid their hands on the head of the ram. Then Mo Moses slaughtered it and splashed the blood around on the altar, and he cut the ram into its pieces. Then Moses offered up the head and the pieces and the soot and smoke. And he washed the entrails and the legs with water. Then Moses offered up the whole ram in smoke on the altar. It was a burnt offering for a soothing aroma. It was an offering by fire to Yahweh, just as Yahweh had commanded Moses. Then he brought near the second ram, the ram of ordination. And Aaron and his sons laid their hands on the head of the ram. And Moses slaughtered it and took some of its blood and put it on the lobe of Aaron's right ear and on the thumb of his right hand and on the big toe of his right foot. He also brought Aaron's sons near, and Moses put some of the blood on the lobe of their right ear, and on the thumb of their right hand, and on the big toe of their right foot. Moses then splashed the rest of the blood around on the altar. And he took the fat, and the fat tail, and all the fat that was on the entrails, and the lobe of the liver, and the two kidneys, and their fat, and the right thigh. From the basket of unleavened bread that was before Yahweh, he took one unleavened cake, and one cake of bread mixed with oil, and one wafer. And he placed them on the por portions of fat and on the right thigh. He then put all these on the hands of Aaron and on the hands of his sons and waved them as a wave offering before Yahweh. Then Moses took them from their hands and offered them up in smoke on the altar with the burnt offering. They were an ordination offering for a soothing aroma. It was an offering by fire to Yahweh. 
Moses also took the breast and waved it as a wave offering before Yahweh. It was Moses' portion of the ram of ordination, just as Yahweh had commanded Moses. So Moses took some of the anointing oil and some of the blood which was on the altar and sprinkled it on Aaron, on his garments, on his sons, and on the garments of his sons with him. And he set Aaron apart as holy, his garments and his sons, and the garments of his sons with him. Then Moses said to Aaron and to his sons, Boil the flesh at the doorway of the tent of meeting, and eat it there together with the bread which is in the basket of the ordination offering, just as I commanded, saying, Aaron and his sons shall eat it. And the remainder of the flesh and the bread you shall burn in the fire. And you shall not go outside the doorway of the tent of meeting for seven days, until the day that the period of your ordination is fulfilled, for he will ordain you through seven days. Yahweh had commanded to do, as has been done this day, to make atonement on your behalf. At the doorway of the tent of meeting, moreover, you shall remain day and night for seven days, and keep the charge of Yahweh, so that you will not die, for so I have been commanded. Thus Aaron and his sons did all the things which Yahweh had commanded through Moses. All right, and Leviticus 9. Now it happened on the eighth day that Moses called Aaron and his sons and the elders of Israel. And he said to Aaron, Take for yourself a calf, a bull for a sin offering, and a ram for a burnt offering, both without blemish, and bring them near before Yahweh. Then to the sons of Israel you shall speak, saying, Take a male goat for a sin offering, and a calf and a lamb, both one year old, without blemish for a burnt offering, and an ox and a ram for peace offerings, to sacrifice before Yahweh and a grain offering mixed with oil, for today Yahweh will appear to you. So they took what Moses had commanded to the front of the tent of meeting, and the whole congregation came near and stood before Yahweh. And Moses said, This is the thing which Yahweh has commanded you to do, that the glory of Yahweh may appear to you. All right. Mark 3, verse 31, through the end of the chapter. Then his mother and his brothers arrived, and standing outside, they sent word to him, calling him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Behold, your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. And answering them, he said, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who were sitting around him, he said, Behold, my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Mark 4. And he began to teach again by the sea, and such a very large crowd gathered to him that he got into a boat in the sea and sat down, and the whole crowd was by the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables, and was saying to them in his teaching, Listen to this, behold, the sower went out to sow. And it happened that as he was sowing, some seed fell beside the road, and the birds came and ate it up. And other seed fell on the rocky ground, where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up, because it had no depth of soil. And after the sun rose, it was scorched, and because it had no root, it withered away. And other seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns came up, and choked it, and it yielded no crop. And other seeds fell into the good soil, and as they grew up and increased, they were yielding a crop, and produced thirty, sixty, and a hundredfold. And he was saying, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when he was alone, his followers, along with the twelve, began asking him about the parables. And he was saying to them, To you has been given the mystery of the kingdom of God. But to those who are outside, everything comes in parables, so that while seeing, they may see and not perceive, and while hearing, they may hear and not understand, lest they return and be forgiven. 
And he said to them, do you understand this parable? How, I'm sorry, do you not understand this parable? How will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word, and these are the ones who are beside the road where the word is sown. When they hear, immediately Satan comes and takes away the word which has been sown in them. And in a similar way, these are the ones being sown on the rocky places. Those who, when hearing the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but are only temporary. Then when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are those being sown among the thorns. These are the ones who have heard the word, but the worries of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for anything else enter in and choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. And those are the ones which were sown on the good soil. They who hear the word and accept it and are bearing fruit, thirty, sixty, and a hundredfold. And he was saying to them, is a lamp brought to, I'm sorry, is a lamp brought to be put under a basket or under a bed? Is it not to be put on the lampstand? For nothing is hidden except to be revealed, nor has anything been secret but that it would come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And he was saying to them, beware what you listen to. By your standard of measure, it will be measured to you, and more will be given to you. For whoever has, to him more shall be given. And whoever does not have, even what he has shall be taken away from him. All right. And now Psalm 37, verses 12 through 29. The wicked schemes against the righteous and gnashes at him with his teeth. The Lord laughs at him, for he sees that his day is coming. The wicked have drawn the sword and bent their bow to cast down the afflicted and the needy, to slay those who are upright in conduct. Their sword will enter their own heart, and their bows will be broken. Better is the life of the righteous than the abundance of many wicked. For the arms of the wicked will be broken, but Yahweh sustains the righteous. Yahweh knows the day of the blameless, and their inheritance will be forever. They will not be ashamed in the time of evil, and in the days of famine they will be satisfied. But the wicked will perish, and the enemies of Yahweh will be like the glory of the pastures. They vanish in smoke, they vanish away. The wicked borrows and does not pay back, but the righteous is gracious and gives. For those blessed by him will inherit the land, but those cursed by him will be cut off. The footsteps of a man are established by Yahweh, and he delights in his way. When he falls, he will not be hurled headlong, because Yahweh is the one who sustains his hand. I was young, and now I am old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken, or his seed begging bread. All day long he is gracious and lends, and his seed is a blessing. Depart from evil and do good, so you will dwell forever. For Yahweh loves justice and will not forsake his holy ones. They are kept forever but the seed of the wicked will be cut off. The righteous will inherit the land and dwell in it forever. All right. And now Proverbs 10, verse 5. He who gathers in summer is a son who acts insightfully, but he who sleeps in harvest is a son who acts shamefully. All right. Well, that is our reading for this morning. Um, Thank you for spending this time with me. Um, I hope this time in the Word has been edifying for you. Um, And like I said, this evening we will be coming back and again doing a reading from uh, Thomas Watson's The Godly Man's Picture. 
the godly, yeah, the godly man's picture. All right. Well, I hope you have a wonderful day. You have a wonderful time at church. If you're going this morning and didn't go last night and God willing, I will see you this evening. Let's go ahead and close with the Lord's, Lord's day morning prayer. Let's pray. O maker and upholder of all things day and night are thine. They are also mine from thee the night to rid me of the cares of the day to refresh my weary body to renew my natural strength the day to summon me to new to new activities to give me opportunity to glorify thee to serve my generation to acquire knowledge holiness eternal life but one day above all days is made especially for thy honor and my improvement the sabbath reminds me of thy rest from creation of the resurrection of my savior of his entering into repose Thy house is mine, but I am unworthy to meet thee there, and am unfit for spiritual service. When I enter it, I come before thee as a sinner, condemned by conscience and thy word. For I am still in the body and in the wilderness, ignorant, weak, in danger, and in need of thine aid, but encouraged by thy all-sufficient grace. Let me go to thy house with a lively hope of meeting thee, knowing that there thou wilt come to me and give me peace." My soul is drawn out to thee in longing desires, for thy presence in the sanctuary, at the table, where all are entertained on a feast of good things. Let me before the broken elements, emblems of thy dying love, cry to thee with broken heart for grace and forgiveness. I long for that blissful communion of thy people, in thy eternal house, in the perfect kingdom. These are they that follow the Lamb. May I be of their company. Amen. All right. Again, I hope you have a good day. And like I said, God willing, I will see, see you this evening. Have a good one. God bless. Welcome to the evening segment of the Faith Comes From Hearing podcast. Good evening and welcome to the evening segment of the Sunday, February 19th episode. That's episode 172 of the Faith Comes From Hearing podcast. I continue to be Wayne Floyd, your host. Um, we are going to, um, like like I indicated in the morning segment, uh, we're going to read from Thomas Watson's The Godly Man's Picture this evening instead of uh, doing our Bible study. We'll get back to our Bible study Monday morning. Um, but I thought it'd be nice to expose us all to that to this and honestly it gives me a little bit of a break trying to prepare message after message after message and sometimes I need a little bit of a break so um, I hope this will be edifying for you um, I hope last evening was and I hope this will continue to be um, so let's go ahead and get into it let's go ahead and open up with our first day evening prayer it's called the teacher let's pray O God, we bless thee, our creator, preserver, benefactor, teacher, for opening to us the volume of nature, where we may read and consider thy works. Thou hast this day spread before us the fuller pages of revelation, and in them we see what thou wouldst have us do, what thou requirest of us, what thou hast done for us, what thou hast promised to us, what thou hast given us in Jesus. We pray thee for a conscious experience of his salvation, and our deliverance from sin, in our bearing his image, in our enjoying his presence, in our being upheld by his free spirit. Let us not live uncertain of what we are, of where we are going. Bear witness with our spirit that we are thy children, and enable each one to say, I know my Redeemer. Bless us with a growing sense of this salvation. If already enlightened in Christ, may we see greater things. 
If quickened, may we have more abundant life. If renewed, let us go on from strength to strength. Give us closer abiding in Jesus, that we may bring forth more fruit, have a deeper sense of our obligations to him, that we may surrender all, have a fuller joy, that we may serve him more completely, and may our faith work by love towards him who died, towards our fellow believers, towards our fellow men. Amen. All right, now our evening devotion for from Spurgeon's Morning and Evening for February 19th. The text is from John 141. He first findeth his own brother, Simon. This case is an excellent pattern of all cases where spiritual life is vigorous. As soon as a man has found Christ, he begins to find others. I will not believe that thou hast tasted of the honey of the gospel, if thou canst eat it all thyself. True grace puts an end to all spiritual monopoly. Andrew first found his own brother, Simon, and then others. Relationship has a very strong demand upon our first individual efforts. Andrew, thou didst well to begin with Andrew, thou didst well to begin with Simon. I doubt whether there are not some Christians giving away tracts at other people's houses who would do well to give away a tract at their own. Whether there are not some engaged in works of usefulness abroad who are neglecting their special sphere of usefulness at home. Thou mayest or thou mayest not be called to evangelize the people in any particular locality, but certainly thou art called to see after thine own servants, thine own kinsfolk and acquaintance. Let thy religion begin at home. Many tradesmen export their best commodities. The Christian should not. He should have have all his conversation everywhere of the best savior, of the best saver. Excuse me, but let him have a care to put forth the sweetest fruit of spiritual life and testimony in his own family. When Andrew went to find his brother, he little imagined how imminent Simon would become. Simon Peter was worth ten Andrews, so far as we can gather from sacred history, and yet Andrew was instrumental in bringing him to Jesus. You may be very deficient in talent yourself, and yet you may be the means of drawing to Christ one who shall become eminent in grace and service. Ah, dear friend, you little know the possibilities which are in you. You may but speak a word to a child, and in that child there may be slumbering a noble heart which shall stir the Christian church in years to come. Andrew has only two talents, but he finds Peter. Go thou and do likewise. All right. How wonderful that is. I mean, you know, and I've, I've, we've, we've studied through that. Sorry, need a little bit of liquid there. You know, and we studied through that and that was what we saw is that, you know, Andrew turned and went to Peter and how wonderful that was. Okay. This is going to be interesting. I'm actually in a different location than I was last night. So we'll have to see if I have enough light. Okay. So like I said, we're reading from uh, Thomas Watson's A Godly Man's Picture. We're going to be starting in section number four. Um, and this is on page 20. Not that that necessarily means anything to you unless you have it yourself and have the same Puritan paperback that I have. Um, but we're starting in section four. And this is the section that starts showing us the characteristics of a godly man. So we've done kind of the introduction and some of the few things he wanted to say at the beginning. Um, and I think I'm going to try to read five sections this morning or this evening, excuse me. Um, and we'll see, <clears throat> we'll see how far we get through this. 
So showing the characteristics of a, I'm sorry, section four, showing the characteristics of a godly man. It will be inquired in the next place. Who is the godly man? For the full answer to this, I shall lay down several specific signs and characteristics of a godly man. Section one, the first fundamental sign is that a godly man is a man of knowledge. The prudent are crowned with knowledge, Proverbs 14, 18. The saints are called wise virgins, Matthew 25, 4. A natural man may have some discursive knowledge of God, but he knoweth nothing yet as he ought to know, 1 Corinthians 8, 2. He does not know God savingly. He may have the eye of reason, sorry, he may have the eye of reason open, but he does not discern the things of God in a spiritual manner. Waters cannot go beyond their springhead. Vapors cannot rise higher than the sun draws them. A natural man cannot act above his sphere. He is no more able to judge sacred things aright than a blind man is to judge colors. He does not see the evil of his heart. If a face be never so black and deformed, yet it is not seen under a veil. The heart of a sinner is so black that nothing but hell can pattern it, yet the veil of ignorance hides it. He does not see the beauties of a savior. Christ is a pearl, but a hidden pearl. But a godly man is theodactos, taught by God. I think that's Greek there. The anointing teacheth, the anointing teacheth you of all things. 1 John two twenty seven. That is all things essential to salvation. A godly man has the good knowledge of the Lord. 2 Chronicles thirty twenty two. He has sound wisdom. Proverbs 3.21 He knows the God in Christ. To know God out of Christ is to know him as an enemy, but to know him in Christ is sweet and delicious. A gracious soul has the savor of his knowledge. I'm sorry, has the savor of his knowledge. I've done that twice now. 2 Corinthians 2.14 There is a great difference between one who has read of a country or viewed it on the map, and another who has lived in the country and tasted its fruits and spices. The knowledge, knowledge with, which, with which a godly man is adorned has these eight rare ingredients in it. And number one, it is a grounded knowledge. If ye continue in the faith grounded, Colossians one twenty three, It is not a believing as, a, as the church believes, but this knowledge rests upon a du- double basis, the word and the spirit. The one is a guide, the other a witness. Saving knowledge is not changeable or doubtful, but has a certainty in it. We believe and are sure that thou art, the, are, art that Christ, John six sixty nine, being always confident, 2 Corinthians 5, 6. A godly man holds no more than he will die for. The martyrs were so confirmed in the knowledge of the truth that they would seal it with their blood. Number two, it is an appreciative knowledge. The lapidary who has the skill to value a jewel is said to know it. He who esteems God above the glory of heaven and the comforts of the earth knows him. Psalm seventy-three twenty-five. To compare other things with God is to debase deity, as if you should compare the shining of a glowworm with the sun. Number three, it is an enlivening knowledge. I will never forget thy precepts, precepts, for with them thou hast quickened me. Psalm one hundred nineteen ninety three. Knowledge in a natural man's head is like a torch in a dead man's hand. True knowledge animates. A godly man is like John the Baptist.
a burning and a shining lamp. He not only shines by illumination, but he burns by affection. The spouse's knowledge made her sick of love. Song 2.5 I am wounded with love. I am like a deer that is struck with a dart. My soul lies bleeding and nothing can cure me, but a sight of him whom my soul loves. Number four, it is an appropriating knowledge. I know that my Redeemer liveth. Job 19.25 A medicine is best when it is applied. This applicative knowledge is joyful. Christ is called a surety, Hebrews 7.22. Oh, what joy when I am drowned in debt to know that Christ is my surety. Christ is called an advocate, 1 John 2.1. The Greek word for advocate, parakleton, I'm sorry, parakletos, signifies a comforter. Oh, what comfort it is when I have a bad cause to know Christ is my advocate, who never lost any cause he pleaded. Question. But how shall I know that I am making a right application of Christ? A hypocrite may think he applies when he does not. Balaam, though a sorcerer, still said, My God. Numbers 22.18 Answer. Part 1. He who rightly applies Christ puts these two together, Jesus and Lord. Christ Jesus, my Lord. Philippians 3.8 Many take Christ as Jesus, but refuse him as Lord. Do you join Prince and Savior? Acts 5.31 Would you as well be ruled by Christ's laws as saved by his blood? Christ is a priest upon his throne. Zechariah 6.13 He will never be a priest to intercede unless your heart is the throne where he sways his scepter. A true applying of Christ is when we so take him as a husband that we give up ourselves to him as Lord. He who rightly applies Christ derives virtue from him. The woman in the gospel, having touched Christ, felt virtue coming from him, and her fountain of blood was dried up. Mark 5.29 This is to apply Christ when we feel a, a sin-mortifying virtue flow from him. Naturalists tell us there is an antipathy between the diamond and the lodestone. Insomuch that if a piece of iron is laid by the diamond, the diamond will not allow it to be drawn away by the lodestone. So that knowledge, which is applicatory, has an antipathy against sin, and will not allow the heart to be drawn away from it. It is a tr- Number five, it is a transforming knowledge. We all, with open face, beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord, are changed into the same image. 2 Corinthians 3.18 As a painter looking at a face draws a face like it in the picture, so looking at Christ in the mirror of the gospel, we are changed into his similitude. We may look at other objects that are glorious, yet not be made glorious by them. A deformed face may look at beauty, and yet not be made beautiful. A wounded man may look at a surgeon, and yet not be healed. But this is the excellence of divine knowledge, that it gives us such a sight of Christ as makes us partake of his nature. Like Moses, when he had seen God's back parts, his face shone. Some of the rays and beams of God's glory fell on him. Number six, it is a self-emptying knowledge. Carnal knowledge makes the head giddy with pride. 1 Corinthians 8, 1 and 2. True knowledge brings a man out of love with himself. The more he knows, the more he blushes at his own ignorance. David, a bright star in God's church, still thought himself rather a cloud than a star. Psalm seventy-three, twenty-two. Number seven, it is a growing knowledge. 
increasing in the knowledge of God, Colossians 1.10. True knowledge is like the light of the morning, which increases on the horizon till it comes to the full meridian. So sweet is, turn the page, so sweet is spiritual knowledge that the more a saint knows, the more thirsty he is for knowledge. It is called the riches of knowledge, 1 Corinthians 1.5. The more riches a man has, the more still he desires. Though St. Paul knew Christ, yet he wanted to know him more, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. Philemon 3.10. I think that's right, Philemon 3.10. It is a practical knowledge. Number eight, it is a practical knowledge. The sheep follow him for they know his voice. John 10.4. Though God requires knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. Hosea 6.6. Yet it is a knowledge accompanied by obedience. True knowledge not only improves a Christian's sight, but improves his pace. It is a reproach to a Christian to live in a contradiction to his knowledge, to know he should be strict and holy, yet to live loosely, not to obey as all one with not to know. The sons of Eli knew not the Lord, 1 Samuel 2.12. They could not but know, for they taught others the knowledge of the Lord. Yet they are said not to know because they did not obey. When knowledge and practice, like Castor and Pollux, appear together, then they herald much happiness. Use 1. Let us test ourselves by this characteristic. Are they godly who are still in the region of darkness? That the soul be without knowledge, it is not good. Proverbs 19.2 Ignorant persons cannot give God a reasonable service. Roman 12.1 It is sad that after the Son of Righteousness has shown so long, in our hemisphere, persons should still be under the power of ignorance. Perhaps in the things of the world they know enough. None shall outreach them, but in the things of God they have no knowledge. Nahash wanted to make a covenant with Israel, that he might put out their right eyes. 1 Samuel 11.2 The devil has left men their left eye. Knowledge in secular matters, but he has put out their right eye. They do not understand the mystery of godliness. It may be said of them as of the Jews. To this day the veil is upon their heart. 2 Corinthians 3.15 Many Christians are no better than baptized heathens. What a shame it is to be without knowledge. <clears throat> Some have not the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. 1 Corinthians 15.34 Men think it is a shame to be ignorant of their trade, but no shame to be ignorant of God. There is no going to heaven blindfold. It is a people of no understanding. Therefore he that made them will not have mercy on them. Isaiah 27.11 Surely ignorance in these days is affected. It is one thing not to know, another thing not to be willing to know. Men love darkness rather than light. John 3.19 It is the owl that loves the dark. Sinners are like the Atlantis, a people in Ethiopia who curse the sun. Wicked men shut their eyes willfully, Matthew 13, 15, and God shuts them judicially, Isaiah 6, 10. All right, in use one, this is section two. Are they godly who, though they have knowledge, yet do not know as they ought to know? They do not know God experiment, experimentally. How many knowledgeable persons are ignorant? They have illumination, but not sanctification. Their knowledge has no powerful influence upon them to make them better. If you set up a hundred torches in a garden, they will not make the flowers grow. 
but the sun is influential. Many are so far from being better for their knowledge that they are worse. Thy knowledge hath perverted thee. Isaiah 47.10 The knowledge of most people makes them more cunning in sin. These have little cause to glory in their knowledge. Absalom might boast of the hair of his head, but that hanged him. So these may boast of the knowledge of their head, but it will destroy them. Are they godly who, though they know some glimmering of knowledge, yet have no no trustful application of Christ? Many in the old world knew there was an ark, but were drowned because they did not get into it. Knowledge which is not applied will only light a man to hell. It would be better to live a savage than to die an infidel under the gospel. Christ, n- <sighs> sorry. Christ not believed in is terrible. Moses' rod, when it was in his hand, did a great deal of good. It wrought miracles, but when it was out of his hand, it became a serpent. So Christ, when laid hold of, laid hold on by the hand of faith, is full of comfort, but not laid hold on will prove a serpent to bite. Use 2. As we would prove ourselves to be godly, let us labor for this good knowledge of the Lord. What pains men will take for the achievement of natural knowledge, I have knowledge. I have read of one, Bencherat, who spent forty years in finding out the, men- the motion of the eighth sphere. What pains, then, should we take in finding out the knowledge of God in Christ? There must be digging and searching for it, as one would search for a vein of silver. If thou seekest her as silver, Proverbs 2, 4. This is the best knowledge. It is as far surpassed all others as the diamond does the crystal. No jewel we wear so adorns us as this. She is more precious than rubies. Proverbs 3.15 Man knoweth not the price thereof. The depth saith, It is not in me. It cannot be valued with the gold of Ophir, with the precious onyx or the sapphire. Job 28.13-16 The dark chaos was a I'm sorry. The dark chaos was a fit emblem for an ignorant soul. Genesis 1 2. But when God lights up the lamp of knowledge in the mind, what a new creation is there. Here, um, here the soul sparkles like the sun in its glory. This knowledge is encouraging. We may say of the knowledge of nature, as did Solomon, He that increaseth knowledge increaseth sorrow. Ecclesiastes 1 18. To know arts and science is to gather straw. But to know God in Christ is to gather pearl. The knowledge ushers in salvation. 1 Timothy 2.4 Question. But how shall we get this saving knowledge? Answer. Not by the power of nature. Some speak of how far reason will go if put to good use. But alas, the plumb line of reason is too short to fathom the deep things of God. A man can no more reach the saving knowledge of God by the power of reason than a pygmy can reach the pyramids. The light of nature will no more help us to see Christ than the light of than the light I'm sorry, than the light of a candle will help us to understand. The natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, neither can he know them. 1 Corinthians 2:14. What shall we do then to know God in a soul-saving manner? I answer Let us implore the help of God's Spirit. Paul never saw himself blind till a light shone from heaven. Acts 9.3 God must anoint our eyes before we can see. 
what need did Christ have to bid Laodicea to come to him for eyesalve, if she could see before Revelations 3.18? Oh, let us beg the Spirit, who is the Spirit of Revelation, Ephesians 1.17. Saving knowledge is not by speculation, but by inspiration. The inspiration of the Almighty giveth them understanding, Job 32.8. We may have excellent notions in divinity but the Holy Ghost must enable us to know them in a spiritual manner. A man may see the figures on a dial, but he cannot tell how the day goes unless the sun shines. We may read many truths in the Bible, but we cannot know them savingly till God's Spirit shines upon us. The Spirit searcheth all things, yes, the deep things of God, 1 Corinthians 2.10. The Scripture reveals Christ to us, but the Spirit reveals Christ in us. Galatians 1.16 The Spirit makes known that which all the world cannot do, namely the sense of God's love. Use 3. You who have this saving, sanctifying knowledge flourishing in you, bless God for it. This is the heavenly anointing. The most excellent objects cannot be seen in the dark, but when the light appears, then every flower shines in its native beauty. So while men are in the midnight of of a natural state, the beauty of holiness is hidden from them. But when the light of the Spirit comes in a saving manner, then those, truth which they, then those truths which they slighted before appear in that glorious luster, and transport them with wonder and love. Bless God, you saints, that he has removed your spiritual cataract, and has enabled you to discern those things which by nature spectacles, which by nature spectacles you could never see. How thankful Christ was to his Father for this. I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent, and hast revealed them unto babes. Matthew 11.25 How you should admire free grace, that God has not only brought the light to you, but given your eyes to, giving, given you eyes to see it, that he has enabled you to know the truth as it is in Jesus. Ephesians 4.21 That he has opened not only the eyes of your understanding, but the eye of your conscience. It is a mercy you can never be thankful enough for, that God has so enlightened you that you should not sleep the sleep of death. All right. I think, you know what, I'm going to read one more section. Um, This is section two. A godly man is a, you know what, no, I'm not. I'm going to save that because it, honestly, it's Saturday night. I'm recording this ahead of time and I need to get to bed and get ready for church in the morning. So, um, again, so I hope this reading has been edifying to you. I'm actually enjoying it. Um, I, am enjoying what Thomas Watson has to say. I've not been able to do as much reading in Thomas Watson as I'd like to. So again, I, I hope it's edifying for you. I hope this little bit of a change hasn't thrown you too far off, but has, but has definitely been a boon to you. All right. Well, I hope you have a wonderful night, and God willing, I'll see you in the morning. Let's go ahead and close out with the Lord's Day evening prayer. Let's pray. Most holy God, may the close of an earthly Sabbath remind me that the last of them will one day end. Animate me with joy that in heaven praise will never cease, that adoration will continue forever, that no flesh will grow weary, no congregations disperse, no affections flag, no thoughts wander, no will droop, but all will be adoring love. Guard my mind from making ordinances my stay or trust. 
from hewing out broken cisterns, from resting on outward helps. Wing me through earthly forms to thy immediate presence. May my feeble prayers show me the emptiness and vanity of my sins. Deepen in me the conviction that my most fervent prayers and most lowly confessions need to be repented of. May my best services bring me nearer to the cross and prompt me to cry, None but Jesus. By thy Spirit give abiding life to the lessons of this day. May the seed sown take deep root and yield a full harvest. Let all who see me take knowledge that I have been with thee, that thou hast taught me my need as a sinner, hast revealed a finished salvation to me, hast enriched me with all spiritual blessings, hast chosen me to show forth Jesus to others, hast helped me to dispel the mists of unbelief. O great Creator, mighty Protector, gracious Preserver, Thou dost load me with loving kindness, and hast made me thy purchased possession, and redeemed me from all guilt. I praise and bless thee for my Sabbath rest, my calm conscience, my peace of heart. Amen. All right, again, I hope you have a great night, and God willing, I'll see you in the morning. Have a good one. God bless.